Hello, you're on equal footing with Dove Tuzman. Welcome. This week we're going to be talking about the effects of the pandemic on the judicial process, the way that this COVID-obsessed reality has affected our our rights as uh, citizens in the courtroom, the way that it's affected the prosecutorial process. It's going to be an interesting uh, no-holds-barred discussion. Before we get started, I wanted to let folks know that we're available also on SoundCloud if you look for equal footing. And next week, we're going to be up on a bunch of other socials as well as uh, other uh, podcast platforms. I appreciate the input on that from from listeners. But uh, if you want to get a jump on it, uh, subscribe to equal footing on on SoundCloud and uh, we'll get you going as well as we get on these other platforms. So we're taking a little bit of a break from the last couple of weeks talking about biblical problems that got me in some hot water, uh, talking about uh, whether the Western religions are really monotheistic. Last week we were talking about whether the uh, soul and the afterlife as actually mentioned in the Bible, you know, these pretty tricky topics. So I figured we'd switch gear to a different type of tricky topic, but that's what much more contemporary. And for those of you who've been listening to this show for some time, you know that this is a very personal subject matter for me. I've been involved in different areas of the judicial process, let's say, both a plaintiff and a defendant, and I've also had my experience in the criminal justice system, which has been extraordinarily eye-opening and uh, painful and has been an ongoing journey. So we're going to, I'm going to have to bring a little bit of a personal perspective to our discussion this evening with two great guests, John Giardino, who's here in the studio with me, and Peter Ginsberg, who's uh, on the line uh, with us on the air as well. And John, it's really a pleasure to to have you. Thanks for coming in. First guest in the studio for a while because, you know, we've been living in this pandemic reality, so... Here I am in the flesh. No <laughs> virtual presence for me. <laughs> and, and John's uh, uh, li- listeners are going to really enjoy that. Uh, what do you call it? It's just your misty voice, your sexy. Because John's also a jazz radio host, so I'm feeling yeah. somewhat insecure here. Yeah, don't don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter Ginsburg's on the line with us uh, uh, by phone. Peter, welcome to Equal Footing. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'll start by introducing you, John, and, and uh, your bio is so impressive. Uh, John is the managing partner of the New York office of Michaelman and Robinson, and he's a lawyer who's been sought after to handle some of the most challenging and high-stakes cases out there, many of which have been quite newsworthy, including the $1.2 billion collapse of the New York State Workers' Compensation Program, the landmark redevelopment of the Apthorpe for any of the living on the in, in New York at the time, we're familiar with that Upper West Side project, and the lender was taken over by the Irish government. There was a lot of drama around that. And uh, and John is, is given his body of work in the courtroom, and apropos to tonight's discussion about how the pandemic has affected the judicial process, he's one of the select few legal professionals in the country who's been chosen to serve on the American Board of Trial Advocates on the COVID-19 task force, specifically, which was created to address pandemic-related issues impacting the legal profession, the judicial system, and, of course, the clients of that system, which are the, the, the public. And outside of his legal practice, John is quite active in the community. He's been appointed by three different governors of the state of New York 
to serve in public posts. He's held positions on the board of the Urban League, the NAACP, and the National Conference for Community and Justice, amongst other organizations. And he's received awards for his philanthropic work over the years. And one honor that I think is of particular significance and particularly cool is that John was chosen to carry the Olympic torch for the Summer Games in, in Atlanta. What was that, 1996? No, no, I'm kidding. Um, that's good. 98? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was quite an experience. Actually. I bet. Yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing. And, and, we, and you're also uh, kind of a, a man after my own heart because you play collegiate baseball, as, as I did. We're both lifelong baseball fans. Right. Um, you have the sickness, unfortunately, of of, um, of rooting for the um, the Yankees, as I uh, as I was sad to to learn. Yeah, you will forgive me for that. Yeah, I, I, it's <laughs> going to take a while. Um, so, and Peter, these are two. I had to condense these these bios because these two men have done extraordinary things in their professional life. Peter is the assist was formerly the assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York. And across several decades of practicing law, he has extensive experience handing trials and investigations on behalf of both the government as a prosecutor and for private citizens as a, as a uh, defense attorney. And these are for cases involving money laundering, fraud, insider trading, bribery, tax evasion, antitrust, RICO, and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, amongst, amongst other issues. It's a really broad experience. And... Many of you may or may have heard Peter's name actually from a different area of his practice. In addition to being a prosecutor and defending the rights of the accused in the criminal justice system over the years, he has been a national force in the sports law field. He really has been a pioneer in championing the rights of labor versus management in the sports world. He's represented folks from the NFL, from the PGA Tour, from the NBA, from uh, from baseball, etc. Ray Rice, Michael Vick, Michael Irvin, Vijay Singh, Kawi Leonard, many, many clients. And as a result, he's often in the media, uh, given his sports law work, you know, on ESPN, Sports Illustrated, CNBC, CBS, etc., as well as the National Law Review and the New York Law Journal, amongst others. So, John and Peter, I'm really uh, uh, lucky to have you guys here. Let, let's start, maybe, John, by you setting the stage for us. Has, what has actually changed at a really basic level in the legal system as a result of, of the pandemic? What are the, some of the general contours of that change? Well, let's start with the very basic, which is that on March 13th, uh, 2020, the courthouses closed. Uh, I happened to have been in court that afternoon. It was a Friday, and uh, on that day... The courthouse is closed, and by and large, they have remained closed uh, for the past year. And was that across the country? I would say not quite across the country. There's some states that felt that they could still operate uh, without the restrictions of COVID, but I would say the majority of courts across the country, yes, certainly here in New York. And did did everything freeze up? I mean, did the docket, if you are you know, a defendant... You know, in, in a criminal matter, for example, and maybe this question is, is more directed at you, Peter, given your, your, um, you've practiced criminal law for so long. It, you, what happened to you if you were in the process? You were being, you know, detained in jail pre-trial or you were awaiting, uh, sentencing or what have you. What, what was the general, you know, approach in that, in that regard? Um, as much as the criminal justice system is essentially slanted against the accused, under the best of circumstances, the uh, the pitch got a lot steeper starting on, on March 13th. 
life has become much more challenging, much more problematic for the accused. And every, every, I'm sorry. Yeah, and it, why elucidate us? Why? First of all, why is the pitch inclined, or why is there a bias in the system against the accused? I guess as a general statement, and how did that get worse specifically? In, in, many, in a variety of ways, when a federal prosecutor, for instance, stands before a jury and the first words out of his or her mouth is, on behalf of the United States, you, you have, have a, a, a legitimacy with the jury that a criminal defense lawyer doesn't necessarily have. More so in the state system than in the federal system, there's an alignment uh, between the judges and the prosecutors. You know, to the extent that even the judges need prosecutorial support for reappointment or um, in, in elections. So there's a kind of uh, relationship that criminal defense lawyers don't generally enjoy with with uh, with judges. Um, for, you know, that, that, those are just sort of the basic reasons that, um, that the pitch is tilted against the, the criminal defendants. And have things gotten worse in the pandemic, and, and why? In order for a criminal defendant to have his or her fair day in court, there has to be personal interaction. There has to be an ability to appeal in a personal way to a judge or a jury. And a criminal defendant also has the weight of the world uh, on, on his or her shoulders while awaiting trial. And the longer things are delayed, the more emotionally traumatic um, the experience is. Uh, there are certain rights, such as speedy trial rights, which, although statutory, are embedded in constitutional principles, which have been compromised really through no fault of, of you know, through no person's fault that the rights of the defendant have been uh, severely jeopardized in, ter- in terms of getting uh, quick justice. So, John, what, to Peter's point, what what rights do you have uh, either as a as a criminal justice defendant or as a civil litigant when everything freezes up? Uh, are those constitutional rights still available to you, or were they kind of suspended over the last year? Yeah, I would say that they've absolutely been suspended. You begin with one of the fundamental rights, which is the right to confront your accuser. Right. And the whole idea of that, and that's a principle of, you know, this is all about the pursuit of justice and truth. And one of the bedrock principles of that is that you get to confront those who speak against you. Right. You get to see them face to face. You get to look into their eyes. Right. And those things are, have not been available because of the, uh, the impairments of proceedings and the closure of courthouses. So have most justice, have, have most, most judges, John, have, like just suspended cases and said we'll come back to it in a year or have they said you have a choice to do this by zoom sorry for these naive yeah. questions but like i bet you people wondering out there what's actually happening is most people thankfully are not involved in a lawsuit at any given moment statistically speaking so if you are in a lawsuit or god forbid you're being accused of, of criminal wrongdoing by the government what choices were you given once the, the the courts across the country shut down last march 2020 yeah let me respond to that i mean it's been a bit of an evolution uh, when the courts shut down in March, 
the courts really weren't uh, ready for that type of an, an incident. And, and so, for the most part, the courts literally shut down. There was no activity uh, for the months of March and April. And then the courts began to adopt alternative means of communicating with the litigants and their lawyers. You know, in the initial stages, it was <laughs> telephone conferences, which have been common uh, and used very frequently for a number of purposes, but those conferences began to take on other purposes, pre-trial conferences and things like that, which are typically in person. Mm-hmm. And then the adoption of technology, Zoom, Skype, depending on the court, so that there could be a video component to the uh, interaction with the court. Hmm. And that got to be fairly standardized, I want to say probably in the July time frame. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, cases really did slow down. There's huge backlogs in all of our courts right now. One of the real challenges to our uh, chief judge will be how to clean up these uh, backlogs. They're talking about alternative dispute resolutions to use as a tool. They're talking about bringing back retired judges to conduct hearings in certain matters. Wow. So there's a lot of adaptation around just the fact that things stopped. I mean, as of today, it's quite possible to uh, take on certain aspects of a proceeding. Um, but when it comes to trial, I think that's where we're really kind of hung up, is how do we actually conduct a trial in a fair way? And there, there are a number of things involved in this. There are constitutional rights. Right. There is the right to confront your accuser. That's the Sixth Amendment. There's a right to a trial by jury. Right. Uh, that's the Sixth to Fourteenth Amendment. Even in a civil case, the Seventh Amendment gives a litigant the right to a jury trial. And so there are constitutional rights. Uh, I think there are many of other elements of a trial that we can talk about and how they've been affected. The flip side is there's got to be a way to be practical. Right. You know, my clients want to see their cases move forward. They don't want to have their case sit still for years and years. And on, that, on that point, Peter, about the the practical trade-offs, you, you know, you, when you you see this on TV, even in a stylized way, I lived up close and personal in my life, the enormous pressure that you have as a defendant to settle something or to uh, take responsibility and get rid of a, of a case because the odds of, of winning, even if you're innocent, are very low in the system. And so... Have the pressures gotten worse? Uh, are are people making practical decisions for bench trials, which are trials where a judge makes a decision instead of the jury, or settlements uh, or pleas and stuff at a rate that they were not doing before the pandemic, like statistically speaking, Peter? Well, look, I, I can give you anecdotal information. There's not an awful lot of empirical information that's been developed thus far, but just uh, there, there are three uh, specific stages of the process that I think have been adversely affected uh, by this kind of remote efforts to handle uh, the process. An arraignment, uh, a defendant has a right to an arraignment within 24 hours in the state system. The arraignment is you're, you're, you've been arrested and you now have, a, have an opportunity to find out why you've been arrested, right? I mean, to put it in more simple terms. Yeah. And that has that's to happen within exactly. within like a day and a half. Yeah, um, it's supposed to be within twenty four hours. Okay. I I don't believe that a judge can effectively weigh the um, 
the, the weigh the all of the factors that go into an arraignment and a determination whether to release someone on bail if it's being done remotely. If the judge doesn't have the defendant's family in the courtroom, if the judge can't get a, a feeling right. of a defendant. So I think that doing that stage of the proceeding remotely, there may not be an option. There hasn't been an option in the last year, but I think it adversely affects the defendant. And the same with bail hearings. Um, again, I don't have any recent empirical evidence, but in 2010, I think it was, there was a study um, related to bail hearings in Cook County, Illinois. Cook County, because of the backlog of criminal cases, started doing uh, bail hearings remotely. had nothing to do with COVID. But in reaction or in response to those bail hearings not being done in person and being done remotely, the amount of bail the judges imposed on criminal defendants went up 51%. Wow. I, I think there's no, uh, I, I, I think that when uh, people come and go back and look at the consequences of uh, the, the COVID shutdown, the results will match that we, Cook County. We did, we um, did a show uh, a few weeks back, Peter, about the sentencing process and how absolutely essential it is for judges to get context. Uh, whether it's audiovisual, whether it's letters from family members and so forth that help three-dimensionalize or put the human being in front of them in context that isn't just related to the charges sitting in front of them. We're going to take a, a quick break, and we'll be back talking to John Giardino and Peter Ginsburg, leading lawyers, uh, litigants, uh, experience both as prosecutors and as defense lawyers, talking about the way that the pandemic has affected the judicial process. I think it's an important topic that has not been addressed enough. It isn't just about delays in the system. There are some fundamental changes that are probably going to stick with us, which we'll get back to after the break. To participate in this discussion, you can call in 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. As always, if you're shy about being on the air, you can also text a question in confidentially to 917 917- Four two eight four zero six two. That's nine one seven four two eight four zero six two. And when you're texting in, just indicate whether you you want your name mentioned or not, so I can keep it confidential. Out of respect, we'll be right back on equal footing. Equal Footing is brought to you in part by DocuVax. Are you a small or medium-sized business owner who wants to provide a low-cost, effective health benefit for your employees? A parent or a school administrator wanting to ensure that the students, your children, have proper vaccines to go to school? Or maybe you are trying to, just as an individual, get a hold of your medical information as you switch healthcare providers or move to a new city. Well, welcome to DocuVax. It's an easy-to-use digital locker accessible on your laptop or smartphone. It allows you to safely store and validate your basic medical information, like your immunization records, your lab results, even x-rays and MRIs. Gone are those frustrating days of losing time tracking down your old medical records in some cabinet or calling old doctors and sharing test results with a new healthcare provider. The DocuVax system covers over 60 different important elements of your medical profile from 
COVID and tetanus vaccines to colorectal and breast cancer screenings to serology tests and allergy information. To sign up, go to docuvax.com, that's D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com, or call 833-859-1933. For as little as $6.99 per month, DocuVax subscribers can privately access all of their medical records from a secure, HIPAA-compliant digital storage facility. And as a DocuVax subscriber, medical professionals are on call for you 24 hours a day to validate your vaccine records, your blood tests, or anything else in your locker. So sign up to DocuVax at 833-859-1933. And if you're a small or medium-sized business and want to sponsor your employees on DocuVax, mention Equal Footing and you will get a discount. Operators are standing by 833-859-1933. All right, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tusman, joined by my guests John Giardino and Peter Ginsburg, accomplished lawyers who bring perspectives from both sides of the aisle, so to speak, as prosecutors, as defense attorneys. And we're talking about the impact of the pandemic on on judicial process. And I want to get back to the uh, the human factor, John. You, you you deal with clients from of all of all sorts and and and, and stripes. Um, what happens now when you don't, we've been talking about, you don't get to face your accuser or even if you're a plaintiff, you don't get to be in the, in the courtroom. Uh, you're probably encouraged by the system, either forced to not have a jury trial right now or encouraged to take a bench trial or to delay or to settle out of court. Um, what's the, what are the impact on your, on your clients that I guess, uh, emotional level or psychological level? How, how, how do they hold, how are they holding up now? Uh, vis-a-vis, you know, prior to the pandemic a year and a half ago? Well, I think the delays are causing a lot of stress to people. But uh, one thing I would like to say, you know, and it's great to hear a former prosecutor like Peter Ginsburg talk about the human element in context. I congratulate him for that. Um, But, uh, you know, what we do in a courtroom is uh, to really get at the truth, and what is truth? The truth is authentic, authenticity. In fact, in our proceedings, we talk about authenticating evidence. What does that mean? It means making sure that a particular piece of evidence is of undisputed origin. It's genuine. Where does it come from? When we question witnesses, we want to make sure that they're speaking the truth. How do you determine that? It's body language. It's uh, the way they speak, do, do they choke up, do they seem stressed? All those things are the human elements of all of this. Can't you see that on Zoom, though? I mean, are, is this, are, are folks showing up on screen in front of the judges, in front of the jury? Is that happening, or is well, that just Well, I'll, I'll ask you that when you do a FaceTime <laughs> or when you, uh, you know, people don't look the same when they're seen through the perspective of a phone camera. They don't look the same when they're seen through the 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 perspective of a laptop camera. It's different. It's an image. And, you know, just think about it this way. We talk about virtual trials. So I just spoke about authentic, which means absolutely real. What is virtual? Virtual is something that is absolutely not real, right. but through a machine or software is given the appearance of something real. So those two things are, a con- are, are in contrast with each other. And we've all had the experience. You, you don't look the same on a phone. 
you see people holding their phones in all kinds of different angles to strike the pose that they want anyone else to see. Um, and so you lose that context of the human element. I imagine there's also a lot of opportunity for abuse because if you've got someone on a screen, you don't know who's off the screen giving them advice or telling them to shut off the signal for a moment. I've had that experience repeatedly where a witness is answering my questions and, and obviously being prompted by something, whether it's text messages on his phone or whether it's someone else in the room giving signals. Uh, but even more than that, and you, you can read about this in the media, there are times when when the going gets tough, a witness will get up and leave the screen. Or it's, it's, very, inter- it's very easy to interrupt a virtual proceeding, right. whereas it's not easy to interrupt a courtroom proceeding. And uh, there's such a different decorum uh, in a courtroom. I imagine there's many excuses as well, technical difficulties, and delays, the opportunity for people to prepare in ways they are not shouldn't be allowed to when they're on the stand, etc. Well, we've all been on Zoom meetings where there are technology issues or the signal gets blurry or fuzzy or people freeze on the frame. So can you imagine you're trying to evaluate whether somebody's really speaking the truth and suddenly they freeze up? Right. Or there's a distortion. That is not that's not authentic. It's virtual. Peter, to to talk a little bit more about this civil rights issue, you know, Martin Luther King was fond of, of the Gladstone quote of, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. Um, for for those of us that are not in a in a criminal justice proceeding, how is how is justice delayed? And there's been tremendous delays as we've, as we've addressed a little bit on this program. And you can uh, you, you you probably know if you've gotten a speeding violation and you've been you've been uh, been you you have an appointment for you know 2023. <laughs> if you've pled not guilty, how delayed <laughs> everything is. Uh, why is justice delayed? Justice denied? What, why does that uh, hurt? the defendant well that aspect could actually work both ways because a prosecutor might have a harder time two years from now having a victim willing to relive a tale relive an event so there may be some advantage to the defendant to have a delay but the emotional toil a toll on a on a defendant having to wait the the uh, financial toll it can can be enormous, you know. Uh, but John was talking about the uh, the detrimental aspects of virtual proceedings. On today's date in 1963, Gideon versus Wainwright was decided by the Supreme Court, and that was a, uh, a historic pronouncement that everyone has a right to counsel. Mm. When you think about a trial, the first stage of the proceeding is the voir dire when the, ju- when the lawyers are selecting a jury. And the last stage is the lawyers giving summations. The great lawyers are lawyers who, I think, can read the people in the audience to whom uh, they're, they're speaking and who can, can connect with witnesses or jurors or judges. I don't believe it's possible to voir dire a jury properly if I can't be in a room with the jury. 
I can't see the body language, not only of the person. I'm sorry, you used, you used a term of art, voir dire, is that, that the, is that the selection of the jury? I'm sorry, it is the selection of the jury. Got it. And when I ask a question of a potential juror, I not only want to see how the potential juror is reacting, but I want to see how everyone in the box who is who also is a potential juror might be reacting to a question, whether favorably or or yeah. adversely. So are you saying that juries well, that, are, sorry for the uh, ignorant, uh, your naive question, are you saying juries are being impaneled virtually now, like the interviews are occurring virtually as opposed to where everyone gathering, we've probably all had those, that many of us have had that experience as U.S. citizen when you gather in the courtroom and you wait for your turn to get asked questions by the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense to see if you're, you sh- you're qualified to sit in the jury. Is that happening virtually? In some, well, in some states, yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah because really folks are seeing on the, on the news, I think that like the impaneling of the, of the George Floyd jury, and uh, I have actually seen the live footage. I don't know if, whether it's happening virtually or not, but that is fascinating to me that that process would be happening virtually. Having been through a process like that, you must lose a ton of nuance. Uh, yeah, and even if the lawyers are in, a, uh, even if the jurors are all together, if the lawyers not in the room with the, with the jury panel, mm. there's there's just no way effectively to to conduct a proper interview of jurors to determine who is fair and who isn't fair, or who. You know, might be a favorable juror or not a favorable juror. John, I want to uh, make sure that we stay away from the really technical stuff because, as fascinating as it is to the at least the two of you, or maybe even the the, the three of us, mm-hmm. there are some there's some pretty fundamental questions that I think do affect people's life, often directly if if not indirectly, and they're going to stay with us. So maybe you could uh, reflect on what. Which changes that have occurred during this pandemic period in the judicial process, whether it has to do with arraignments or uh, filing in the dockets or teleconferences or the use of of uh, of, of, of video or whatever, are going to stay with us? Like which were the the pandemic functioned functioned as a accelerant for, and and we were kind of going there anyway. They're going to stay with us, and which do you think will rubber band back and and go away sometime soon? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that there are certain tools that have been developed that can help expedite proceedings. And that's in the litigants, that's that's in our clients' favor. Mm. If we can accelerate, if we can shorten uh, the time it takes to bring a case to trial, those things are very favorable. And I think... Through through teleconferences and video and... Through technology. I think technology can bring some expediency. I think we can absolutely leverage it to condense the period of time that cases are pending. Uh, and I, I don't have any objection to that. My objection relates to exactly what Peter's talking about. And I'll speak about, you know, what Peter and I really do. We're advocates. Mm. And there's an art to advocacy. And the art to advocacy is, you know, what you would say to a juror, how you perceive that juror reacting to what you just said, making a different decision about the next thing you say to that juror in response to the way you saw that juror react. Same thing with witnesses on the stand. You can look at a witness on the stand. You may have an idea of the things you need to ask them, but you're going to change your mind when you see the ambience, when you see a jury box reacting to something a a witness just said. Now remember, let's talk about this in physical space. You're in a courtroom. The witness is in the witness box sitting next to the judge. The jury is 100 feet away. Um, They're watching. Virtually, I can't tell 
what those jurors are seeing when they're looking at that witness. But if in a if I'm in a courtroom, I can certainly see that. I can see those reactions, and I can adapt to those reactions. Um, that's the art of advocacy. And do you th- so do you think now that's going to be permanently damaged? Are we have a lot of courts I, around the country adjusted, so now they are going to go more easily to to Zoom and to I, virtual hearings. I'm, I'm very optimistic that when we get through this pandemic, we will quickly return to in-court proceedings. And you mentioned my work uh, with the American Board of Trial Advocates. We've put together a 40-page white paper on how to make courtrooms safe, even during a pandemic. So let's say that this situation clears itself up with vaccines and other things. There are ways to take precautions to keep jurors safe, to keep lawyers in the courtroom safe, and to keep witnesses safe. And it may mean spreading things out a little bit in that courtroom. It may mean plastic shields or things like that. But I believe that we will be back in the courtroom because I think there's some fundamental rights that are affected by taking that face-to-face, eye-to-eye. Those are rights that we have. And if I'm a litigant, I don't trust the technology. Well, I'm in a little bit more pessimistic than, than, than you are on it. I'll part, partly to play the devil's advocacy, partly not. We'll come back to that after the break. You're on equal footing with Dove Tusman. We have Peter Ginsburg and John Giardino here on the show talking about the way that the pandemic has affected the judicial process, the way our rights have been affected, our constitutional rights, our civil rights. What's here to stay? What's going to change? We'll be back on equal footing in a minute. Footing with Dove Tusman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Back on Equal Footing, I'm Dove Tusman, and we're talking with my guests, John Giardino and Peter Ginsburg, tonight about the effects of the pandemic on the judicial process, on criminal law and, and litigation, and, it, you know, this kind of trial by Zoom uh, <laughs> dynamic that, that we're seeing out there. Uh, you can participate in this discussion by calling 718-303-9090 or texting a question to 917-428-4062. Uh, John and Peter, right before the break, we were talking about, well, John, you you said you were optimistic that things are going to kind of, generally speaking, kind of return to normal. And I'm a little bit more pessimistic because people don't like being on juries. You know, people, I think there are things about this process that probably speaks to people's um, point.
point places of comfort, you know, not having to go in places. I imagine judges don't mind being able to also sit in their, their jeans and, you know, and be on a video as well. And so I guess if you look at other, what's happened in other areas of, uh, human interaction, if you look at business, but also, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, these virtual cocktails and, and, uh, you know, the way that online dating has evolved during this period, there are elements that have seemed to have fundamentally changed. People are more willing to do things to, up to a certain point in a process virtually than they were before. So I struggle to see why that would be different especially to take a little bit more of the cynics point of view to what Peter mentioned before about how the the pitch you know the uh the playing field is tilted in the in the criminal justice system against the accused and on the side of the government since the folks that determine you know ultimately whether we're going to go back to normal the, the the judges and secondarily you know the the legislative branch I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm cynical, John. Like that, that things are going to really return to normal, and we may see fundamental impairment of our, of our Sixth Amendment rights, Seventh Amendment rights, etc. Yeah, I, I'm going to tell you, I just don't see it that way. And if you would rather have a virtual date than a physical one, well, then we've got a long conversation after the show. Okay. <laughs> it's another, and if you would rather <laughs> be on a virtual or Zoom cocktail party than be in the presence of But those are fun friend. things to do. No but, one wants to be in well, court. Well, now, okay, so let's talk about that, right? Because next you're going to say people don't like lawyers. And, you know, Peter's here to tell you you're absolutely wrong about that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, very, it's very, very frequently that I hear people say, oh, I got jury duty. I don't want to be on jury duty. I don't want to do this. And it's difficult. People have to take time from their lives. But I would offer this. I don't think there's a better experience that someone could have if you want to understand what holds our society together, what makes this work, is that. It's a jury trial. We don't have, we don't settle disputes by combat, at least we try not to, right? We don't, you know throw people in a lake and see if they sink. It is one of the you fundamental know. features of democracy. It's Absolutely. a fundamental, it's yeah. an essential feature of democracy. And so how often do you get to participate in a, in a functioning of a democracy? Right. We don't go to the state capitol and write legislation or argue bills. We don't get a chance to do that. And we could talk about politics at a different time. But this is an opportunity for anyone, anyone from any walk of life, to participate in democracy and play a role in the outcome of an individual an individual's life. So you think if we're sitting here a year from now, Peter, let's let's get your take on this. We're sitting here a year from now talking about the same subject. Is everything back to normal or have there been some fundamental changes in I would call virtual justice, like move towards virtual systems in, in the justice system? Well I, I wish that I could paint as rosy a picture as I think John is trying to paint and I I'm also, an advocate, Peter. I'm an advocate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that John's view of the, the beauty of the jury system and the, what it means to our democracy, sitting where I sit, sitting where John sits, we can talk that way, we can believe it, we can truly feel it. But if I'm working two jobs or three jobs and I'm told I'm going to get 40 bucks a day for sitting in a jury box and none of my employers are going to be paying my wages. I'm not going to want to sit in a, I'm not going to want to sit in a jury box. Um, and I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to sit in a jury box. I'll figure out some way to get out. And so the jury, look, the jury system doesn't have a fair selection of the community to start with. 
And I think that there are, if there are avenues to continue to to pull back on those fundamental aspects of the of a trial, I think unfortunately that's probably going to happen. And just this is a, a less important example, but even before the, the the virus shutdown, judges and maybe especially in federal court seem to be. Uh, limiting the amount of oral argument in cases pending before the court. More and more it struck me the judges were deciding motions, for instance, on the papers. Mm. I think they used this as an And that was, that was a trend that was already happening, you're saying? And this yeah. was the, the pandemic yeah. was an accelerant. And it was a detrimental trend to justice because you know, a, a judge may think that he or she understands a case, but until the lawyers have a chance to articulate uh, their positions, I'm not sure a judge can make that, for the most part, can make that predetermination. But I think uh, this will be used as, as an excuse to um, increase that trend. So here's a related question I think is related from a, a listener, John. Uh, that is a, a listener from from Texas. Can a good attorney seek to dismiss a verdict in the near future? Then, due to the fact that it came from a Zoom trial, we're absolutely going to see that. I can assure yeah. you of that. We are going to see that. And uh, I don't know of a case that's been filed or reported yet, but I can assure you we will see that. Mm. There's, uh, to me, it's an undermining of fundamental rights. Right. And I want to pick up on Peter's commentary about judges and just, you know, you say, okay, and and he's right. Uh, We need to treat jurors better. We need to compensate jurors commensurate with the uh, with the sacrifice that they're making to be in the courtroom. More like the Scandinavian 100% without a doubt. But who would you rather have decide a case? Uh, A judge who sits on that bench as a result of a political process, as a result of campaign contributions that have been made to other par- to the party and so on. Who nine one, times out of ten has been a prosecutor. Very often a prosecutor. Uh, but it's a political system, and it's someone who reflects a political point of view. We just went through a highly charged uh, eight-year uh, or four-year administration where appointing judges, appointing judges was the most important thing. Why? Because you tried to pack the court with a certain point of view, a certain philosophy, a certain socioeconomic attitude about us. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. I, I, I will take a panel of jurors from anywhere, anytime over that judge. Over a bench trial. People understand people. I don't care where you come from. Mm. At the end of the day, there's a common human element that people can relate to. And that's why this is so important. Sorry, Peter, go ahead and then we'll take the call. I was just going to say, I totally agree with John about that. I think in 30 years, I've never waived the right to a jury trial. Mm. But I'm concerned. And I'm about the system and the, and the fact that the system doesn't take better and proper care of the people who are serving as jurors. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm quite concerned about the effects of this virtual justice system that's come into play over, or been accelerated over the last uh, year during the pandemic. Caller on line one, you've been very patient. What's your question here about the effect of the pandemic on the judicial process? How are you? This is Stan. Good evening. Stan, how are you? How are you? Uh, first thing... Uh, to the to the gentleman who said uh, the Zoom cases will be thrown out, 
if and if they the Supreme Court is all Zoom. If they get cases related to cases to throw out cases about cases that were done on Zoom, they'll throw them off because they'll throw them out because they'd have to look in the mirror. They've been doing it themselves. So I don't think that's going to happen. The other thing that's very important is just recently, the district attorney of Queens County, just it was the last couple of days, um, uh, Melinda Katz, who I'm not a big fan of, has asked one of the state judges to throw out three to 400 cases, and I'm just bringing up, on prostitution, of women prostitutes for some reason. Gentlemen, how many cases do you think the courts will throw out if, the, if she's thinking to throw out three or four hundred cases on prostitution? Low to minimal criminal cases or things that are not might be thrown out. Do you see that as a possibility? Because the courts will be jammed up. So she's asking for three to four hundred cases to be thrown out, but not even go to court. Do you see that happening? So, John, how do you answer Stan's question on this? What would end up being like a, I guess, a whole bunch of changes and decisions and at yeah, the well, highest for, levels. First, let me say that uh, keep in mind that the Supreme Court doesn't have any evidentiary function. That's an appellate court. Their work is completely devoted to the review of a paper record. There are no witnesses before the Supreme Court. Mm. So keep so that. It's always been a little bit more virtual. Keep that. Well, keep that in mind. It's right. it's not what we're talking about here. As far as uh, I, I do think, some there is a great opportunity right now to take a look at the cases that we do prosecute criminally. I mean, there's a huge diversion away from now prosecuting you know, marijuana cases, right? I mean, 10 years, 15 years ago, it, the, the local courts were swamped with marijuana possession cases. There's a ter- terrific opportunity now to look at the nature of the crime and decide whether we need to devote the full judicial resources to addressing those issues in our society. There's a great opportunity to, re- to reform the way we think about a lot of that. The it's also th- been accelerated, you're saying, by a re-examining of the whole system. Without That's a doubt. I mean, right pandemic. now we have a bit of a crisis on our hands. Mm-hmm. We have huge backlogs. How do we deal with those backlogs? Right. But how can we That's deal a good with point. how can we deal with them in a way that doesn't undermine the things that we've been talking about this e- this evening, but can drive efficiencies into the system? Right. And you mentioned that uh, task force that I served on. Uh, we've come up with a number of recommendations, uh, and our goal would be this: even complex complex commercial cases that often take four or five years. There are ways to handle those cases and complete them within 12 months. Mm. I imagine what, what there's that a, I'm just thinking at the local level when it comes to code enforcement and moving violations, all sorts of stuff where there is technically often a right to trial, to a jury trial, how that stuff can be more effectively handled. And, and your point is a great one that with the massive backlog, there's got to be a more uh, critical eye put to that. Peter, I, I got a question from a, a, a listener here that I, I think was a little tongue in cheek, but I can't, I can't resist. Um, that is referring to the banter earlier about people uh, liking or not lawyers. <laughs> and, <laughs> Who's on the line? Shakespeare. <laughs> so, so, the, so the question is: in the context of the pandemic, is there more opportunity for lawyers to be creative, and has that affected your relationship with your clients? Yeah, sure. There's always any change. Uh, triggers an opportunity to be, to be creative. But I think, just like we were talking about jurors, I think that losing the interpersonal connection with clients compromises both communication and a real relationship. So 
yeah, there are probably better ways to be. There are probably ways to be creative, but I think there's a there's a downside too. And look, I, I don't mean to be the voice of doom because I think John is absolutely right. If we use this moment to realize that small time drug use should not be criminalized and revamp our priorities in that way to get rid of the backlog, that's terrific. But who's talking about what to do to protect tenants' rights who are being evicted and they can't get to court to stop the eviction? We have to be creative in answer to your question. I just don't have any good answers about how to do it and how to handle the crises that are being triggered by by the shutdown of our courts. One of the reasons I wanted to take this question is the fact that in my own personal experience, uh, having you know been as I said on different sides in the in the justice system. As a plaintiff, for example, I feel a little bit less anxious now when there is a conference with the judge because my counsel, uh, you know, I know it just feels more fluid that, you know, there may be two, two conferences, uh, you know, with the judge in a, in a given, in a, in a case within a week or two. And in my previous experience in, in, in business, uh, litigation or, or business law, you know, it, there were fewer in fire between. You get nervous. You have to dress up. You go and, you know, it just feels like they're, and I'm saying this from a very, basic perspective, not a sophisticated perspective, it feels a little bit less stressful as a client when I know that there's this, what feels like a little bit of an informal communication or feels like less formal communication between my legal advocate and, and, and the judge in a given process. And, and that's an example of some of the lessons that we could learn from this because, you know, there's no doubt there are certain proceedings, there are certain matters that are on a court calendar that really don't require everyone to be there. Now, in a criminal case... The defendant always has the right to be present anytime there's mm-hmm. a matter before the judge. In a civil case, it's voluntary. But there's no doubt that if we eliminate those days when you have to go to a courtroom, I go to a courtroom with my client and we sit and wait three and a half hours for our case to be called for a 10-minute encounter. Everybody's grumpy. Perfect opportunity <laughs> to look at that and say there's a different way to do it. Right. But right. You know, those are not proceedings where we're trying to get at the truth. Those are not proceedings where we're trying to assess the authenticity of something. Those are the procedural aspects. And if we can bifurcate those and channel those in ways using technology, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm an absolute proponent of that because in my mind, it gives life to the things that are so important. I love it. We're starting to have a conflict between the pessimistic and the optimistic. Because what you know, I get it. You were saying like, we don't want some of these changes in like, let's call it virtual justice to stay when it comes to those really essential process of getting to the truth. But when it comes to all the stuff that leads up to that, that's that's protocolary and procedurally, maybe this pandemic has had a positive effect. We're going to take one more break. We'll come back with my guests, John Giardino and Peter Ginsburg, talking about trial by Zoom, the effect of the pandemic on judicial process. Okay, equal footing with Dove Tuzman is partially brought to you by Manhattan Medical. So Manhattan Medical's got a very important message for men. What is more emotionally painful than erectile dysfunction? 
that's being unable to have enjoyable sex. Manhattan Medical utilizes new, effective Gains Wave therapy and can help you achieve excellent results. There are no expensive blue pills. It's non-invasive, it's surgery-free, and it's painless. With Manhattan Medical, there are no side effects and, for most patients, wonderful results. For more information, call 888-EDCURE-9. That's 888 888- EDQR9 or 888-332-8739. You know, this sponsor came to me actually through a close friend. He's in his 80s and he's had terrific results with Manhattan Medical. So I can speak to the fact that this is an organization that takes a creative approach to people at very different points uh, in their life, especially folks who've had difficulty with uh, erectile dysfunction issues using other therapeutic means. So give Manhattan Medical a try. Call 888-332-8739. That's 888-EDCURE9. Call now. I've been caught. All right, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm joined by Peter Ginsburg and John Giardino, leading lawyers talking about the effect of the pandemic on the judicial process, the impairment of our some rights, perhaps improvements in other areas in the judicial process. I'm reminded, John, of the Justice Warren quote, because we were just talking about kind of the backlog around quote-unquote minor cases, whether it has to do with marijuana consumption or other issues where we seem to gob up the system unnecessarily, at least from my perspective. And Justice Warren famously said that law exists in a sea of ethics and that really it's not about, you know, the the the, the uh, furtherance of that or the point being that it's not about often what we have the right to do, but what is right to do. And what is the ethical construct here? Because it feels like over the last year, that law and ethics are getting further apart. And I'm turning to you, John, because you've been the optimist tonight. <laughs> Sell us. We're coming up on time. So, John, be the optimist. Peter, be the pessimist. Sell us in, a, in just, a, just a minute on, on how uh, this whole pandemic experience, when it comes to the law, is going to bring what's right to do and what we have the right to do closer together. Well, you touch on ethics and ethical behavior, and what's more human than that? I mean, we all make choices about our behavior and the ethics of our behavior, and the judicial system depends on that collaboration among humans to do the right thing, to be ethical. And the more you replace that with something artificial, the more you move away from that ethical behavior and those ethical choices. Uh, you know, we haven't even talked about artificial intelligence in the legal system, but, you know, there's an opportunity to replace even what I do with an artificial intelligence that can be predictive about how a judge will rule or, yeah. you know, how someone will perceive a witness's testimony. To me, that robs us of our human experience. The opportunity to be ethical is essentially human, and I think we need to do everything we can to protect that. I think we need to do everything we can to protect the interaction between people in the courtroom when they're in the pursuit of justice. I have no issue using technology to support that system and to perhaps create some expediencies within that system. But when it comes to those moments where we really have to make judgments about truth and ethics uh, and trust, 
that's human. It's not artificial, and you can't do it with technology. So, Peter, play the pessimist here uh, to give us a different perspective on w- what we've lived through over the last year and how the justice system has gotten more virtual. Uh, play the pessimist that, that, that law and ethics are getting further apart. Well, I'm, I'm going to say one optimistic thing, and then I'll give you a much more <laughs> depressing um, <laughs> and much more depressing response to that. If what, what John was saying about not having to spend three and a half hours in a courtroom and being able to um, deal with certain legal issues remotely, one of the reasons, just one of them, but one of the reasons why lawyers are so unpopular is the expense. And if we can learn a lesson from the, 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 shut, the, the COVID shutdown and start using technology in certain instances, in a way that will streamline um, time, reduce wasted time, and as a result, save save money for clients. That's a hugely beneficial aspect of the of the system. Now, okay, on, on the pessimistic end, I'm defending a homicide case in Riverside, California. There was a there has been a huge backlog of cases, um, and criminal. Uh, criminal trials by Zoom just weren't working. Mm-hmm. So the courts opened up to start these criminal trials. As it turns out, and again, this is just anecdotal, but jurors were so miserable being in courthouses that were old and didn't have good circulation and just wanted to get out of there, mm-hmm. that one after another there was conviction, 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 with almost no deliberation by the jury oh, after God, the trial. that's horrifying. And it is horrifying. The other horrifying thing is that because of the backlog and because um, in California, like almost every other jurisdiction, hasn't really figured out how to do this, my client's been in jail for a year and a half waiting for her trial. Yeah, I was just reading, how, Peter, in preparation for this show, that the average pre-child attention pre-trial detention period has gone up by over 90 days across the country in all levels of the system during the pandemic. And yep. that's that's before you even have the chance to defend yourself. And that also leads to people take, taking pleas when they might right. not otherwise take pleas because yeah, they just want to finish up. Right. Yeah, I'd love to do a, a show another time. I'm really grateful to both of you guys being on. I'd love to do a show another time on the pressure of the plea. You know, and how that's how that torques the system. I thought I'd just uh, con- close reading a couple of comments that we've gotten that I think are, are interesting. One listener says that uh, she thinks that uh, before cases could easily be adjourned, and now there are less excuses not to be present before a judge because we've done this virtually in the past. So maybe things will move along more quickly. I think that's an interesting. It's a good point. Uh, and another listener yep. says that you know trial by Zoom. Um, can end up, you know, having a flavor of a reality show, and that that's also a a, a danger to to the system. It's a temptation to, for things to be published. Actually, a horrifying thought. Yeah, yes. it is. John Giardino, Peter Ginsburg, thanks so much for being on Equal Footing, talking about the judicial process and how it's been affected by the pandemic. I appreciate it very much having you both on. Our pleasure, Dove. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night. Shots ring out in a barroom night Into Betty Valentine from the upper hall She sees a bartender in a pool of blood Cries out, my God, they've killed them all Here comes the story of